Good morning, Vietnam. I mean, good morning, Australia, or good morning, America. Ah, forget about it. <laughs> This is Felix Krieger with TMISE Sydney. We have another action-packed episode ahead of us. Joining today again is Devin McDermott, straight out of Cali, California. Devin, <laughs> welcome once again to this month in self-enablement. How are you doing? Oh, Felix, it's always such a pleasure to be here. I am doing great. We have so many fun topics to dig into today, so always the highlight of my month. That's right. That's great to hear. And yeah, we have an action-packed agenda. Just to give you a bit of a preview of what we cover today, we have a few interviews that we will touch on that have been happening with sales enablement leaders from the community. We have some social buzz. We have articles that we talk about. Again, we will talk about ChatGPT and how it affects enablement. So I think we'll soon be able to rename the show this month in AI, but uh, we'll <laughs> see how that turns out. And then on top of that, we'll also have a couple of books again that we'll talk about. So not something that we always get to, but we have been committed to the segment. And this month, we will make it happen. So the books that we will talk about include When Women Lead by Julie Borston. And also Stories for Work, The Essential Guide to Business Storytelling by Gabrielle Dolan. So we'll talk about all this and more. But to kick things off, I just want to talk about an interview that has happened recently with Kunal Pandya from UserZoom. He's quite visible in the sales enablement space, does a lot of conference presentations and also teaches in a few courses. And yeah, so quite vocal, especially around the business impact that sales enablement wants to achieve. So everybody who knows me closely, I do have a sales enablement needs to achieve business impact tattoo that I've just recently got. So <laughs> this interview was just on my alley. So I just want to share a brief clip with you of what Kunal had to say. You know, they say uh, data is king, right? But I would say correlation is God, <laughs> right? Because without correlation that alignment and that language you speak to business executives is missing, which is what they want to hear, which is they're not hearing enough of evidently based on the, the layoffs we're seeing. They're not connecting the value. So especially when it comes to interacting with senior executive leadership, if you're an enabler, it is important not only to really showcase those leading indicators that are really close to the sort of work that we're doing as enablers, but also to correlate them to the business impact that we are trying to achieve. So those lagging indicators. And this is a conversation that is coming up over and over again. And those sort of lagging indicators that we're talking about, those are metrics like sales productivity, sales velocity, and all those associated variables. And what we were talking about in terms of the strategic focus of enablement is that more and more often it is really a requirement for us to understand those lagging indicators that senior management care about and then relate them back to those leading indicators that we can easily track and easily influence as enablers. And it is a bit of work. There might be some data analysis required, but this is the only way to really make sure that we create that impact and that engagement from senior executive leadership that we are looking for. So my question to you, Devin, what has been the most common reason for sales enablement layoffs that you've come across in the last few months? Because yeah. that lack of correlation between leading and lagging indicators and that missing correlation was really one of the reasons that Kunal mentioned that he's come across for those layoffs. Yeah, well, at first I have Blanche Devereaux here joining us to answer this uh, question for a moment. Hello, Blanche. But <laughs> a few examples I've heard about and seen from my enablement friends and some former colleagues have shown me a few things. First, organizational readiness for enablement and lack of understanding of the function are the main reasons. And you know, I, I reside in startup land typically, and there are a number of reasons, again, but that organizational readiness and maturity, along with perhaps an immature or disorganized leadership team, and sometimes even just simply the shifting of business priorities have led to the decision to include sales or revenue enablement teams in a layoff. So if a company is, let's say, reducing the size of their sales organization or another team that enablement supports, and they're not necessarily hiring new folks or changing anything, the assumption is that enablement is no longer necessary, which 
is something, Felix, you and I have discussed at length on this podcast. And we actually have an article that we're covering a bit later today that's kind of on the subject around why keeping your enablement function somewhat intact to drive change during these times is so important. The next one that I, I want to chat about, and I hate to say this, but sometimes it literally comes down to dollars. So even your best talent or ROI generating programs are reduced to a number on a spreadsheet. Like we have to eliminate 50 people and then just deal with the collateral damage and we'll figure it out. This is especially true from what I've heard. If the people in the room with that spreadsheet are not closely connected to the programs, the people, or they don't understand the impact of those programs to your point. Also, I've seen companies who quote unquote get enablement, but it's maybe a paper thin understanding of the function and the value it can bring, even when enablement is correlating programming to impact. So the other thing I've seen, this is maybe a bit niche, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it happens in more places, is enablement moving under the wrong leader in a business. So what do I mean by that? If enablement moves under the wrong leader, this could result in a shift in scope. So when it comes to who's going to get laid off in, in that next round of layoffs, it's all about who has the most pull with the E-team. And I've spoken to folks who went through this exact scenario where you know a riff had happened in the organization. They were then placed under an organizational leader who basically didn't want to understand what enablement was and, and literally asked them to sit and listen to recorded sales calls all day uh, to find the best and worst ones and then to share those with the CEO. And when the team explained that, you know, we actually have a system for this, they were using Gong to have a number of automation set up to surface up the good, the bad, the opportunity, and that enablement could do and was in fact doing quite more than this. This leader had a great team of talent and he didn't want them to do much more than that. So the barrier here is that the leader that this team was now reporting into was pretty close-minded and, and didn't want to learn about the value the team could provide. And they were, in fact, correlating programs back to new higher ramp time, sales cycle execution, retention, churn, and so on. Again, other things, and I'm looking at this through the startup lens, is businesses that are focused on the short term, right? They may say, hey, we know that enablement can do these amazing things and, and drive change management, but we just want to focus on training. Deliver, 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 get that training out. It's quick, it's easy, it's comfortable. And so enablement becomes a lag or a seeming lag on the business. You know, there's a number of reasons, but I do want to say before I go any further is you absolutely must tie your enablement efforts back to impact and results. This is a non-negotiable for any strategic enablement function, but based on how certain layoff decisions are made from what I've seen, those who are tracking impact are likely in a better position than others. But in my opinion, so many of these decisions to lay off sales enablement or enablement teams in general, it's slightly more nuanced. Mm, absolutely. I think the other dynamic that I have witnessed is that a lot of times investments in sales enablement were based on the fact that the VC firms investing in those startups actually made it a requirement because they have been sold on the dream that enablement really is the key to that scale. And yeah. you've got the product on the one side and you have the sales team really pushing their product and ensuring those growth rates that those VC firms are after. And right. sales enablement has been viewed as that key to achieving that scale oftentimes. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of founders probably did not care about it as much as the VC firms. So once they actually had the investment, exactly, they were then forced to cut. That was probably not a priority for them. So I think that was the other one, but fully agree with your points. So we have a few people that have commented here. So we have John was saying, just as a response to the conversation, I don't view it as correlation, but causation, simply trying correlating leading indicators to outcomes isn't working for executives. They aren't seeing it, how it causes impact. Not being critical, it's my observation from trying both. Yes, absolutely agree. So correlation and causation, of course. So you really have to make sure that the impact is really ensured and there's really a causation that kind of feeds those lagging indicators. A lot of times the correlation is the first step, like an indicative correlation that is somewhat suspicion. And then you track those indicators closer to then actually prove causation. That's typically the way I see it working. If the data pool isn't very extensive, typically to actually establish those causations, somebody with a data analytics background is really useful. So if you have somebody in your business, especially in RevOps or sales ops, that's typically a person that's worthwhile involving as well. 
One resource that I can also recommend everybody looking into wants to learn more about the business impact of enablement. So Mike Kunkel and I recently ran a webinar called The Seven Steps to Maximizing Sales Enablement Impact. We had a great response to that. Lots of people attending live and even more people are now watching the recording on a day-to-day basis. We provide a lot of actionable advice on how to manage that stakeholder piece and how to be really strategic, not only from a sales enablement and sales effectiveness point of view in your planning process, but also from a stakeholder engagement point of view, you know, because it is important. It's basically a parallel strategy that needs to run these days, not only to deliver those results, but also to showcase those results across the business. Now, moving on, another guest that we had on the show was Damien Lawshi, and he's an enabler from AWS here in Australia. And I met Damien at a sales enablement event here in Sydney. And He actually spoke there and he talked a lot about culture and culture transformation in sales. And I think this is a really interesting one because he mentioned a bunch of data points that really correlate culture to sales effectiveness and the sort of potential and the breeding ground that you create for yourself as an enabler to really make your sales enablement initiatives a success. And uh, let me just share with you what Damien had to say. Some research from Strategy And, which is PwC's consulting arm, in 2019 found that 59% of senior leaders believe they had a strong culture in their organizations, but only 26% of their employees did. So it is something that uh, senior leaders can be in denial about. Senior leadership, in other words, overestimate the quality of the culture within a sales organization. And that can often lead to the bad culture basically spreading across the organization and really leading to those sort of negative behaviors that we don't want to see and that are actually counterproductive to the sort of impact that we are aiming to achieve as sales enablers. And this is something worth thinking about. And Damien actually shared a case study from one of his previous employers. So he worked for Telstra, which is the biggest telco here in Australia, and they embarked on this culture transformation journey. And he also shared a bunch of numbers associated with the impact that had been achieved with that culture transformation. So definitely recommend everybody who is interested in the topic of culture within sales seems to tune in. The question to you, Devin, is have you seen the impacts a change in leadership can have on the culture of the sales team before? And my second question as well is, have you been involved in a culture transformation project? And if so, how did it go? So we've talked on this show quite a bit about how each team and subgroup within an organization has its own unique, you know, microculture or ecosystem. So even if your company has an award-winning culture, it doesn't mean anything if there's a bad leader or toxic leadership. So we also know that a sales leader's attitude, personality, and approach to problem solving trickles down across their team, permeates across the business, and the hands-on sales leaders, the coaches, the ones who participate and join the enablement programs and actually invest in their team's growth and up-leveling can change everything. So I have a, a, like a personal anecdote to share, but my best CRO ever, the person who hired me for my first real sales enablement role, was looking back on it, a total unicorn, but he did everything to drive the culture and he showed up and did the work. So he used to do all of the certifications before his VPs, before the sales team. He joined every single enablement session, asking questions, showing up in the trenches, role-playing, recorded customer videos, wrote scripts. He lived the day in the life of his leaders and his reps. And it helped that he was funny and vulnerable and a very likable person, but he put in the work. He demonstrated the behavior he expected from his teams, and you saw the results. His team was super motivated and engaged, and they wanted to be part of enablement programs because he was part of them. And he, thankfully for me, helped to build and co-sign all of our programs. I mean, he rolled up his sleeves to build certifications. He joined field advisory board sessions, helped with sales kickoffs. And again, it inspired his leaders to do the same. One of my first role-based onboarding programs, it was this 45-day sustained learning program, was only successful because one of our RVPs who reported into the CRO was guiding the program, riding along with me, supporting and securing SMEs. He joined the pitch meeting, actually, that I gave to our executive leadership team to adjust quotas to a learning quota for our reps. And 
in the episode, you talk a little bit about gamification and things like that, but we didn't really gamify much beyond our LMS leaderboard, but our leadership team, and, and these were all new folks, they joined right before I did. They built a culture that included time and pride around learning and self and professional development that drove teamwork and alignment. They walked the walk and they lived it and you saw the results, right? And so I, I've also seen the other side where a new CRO comes in, kind of forces everybody to trust them, talks about being transparent and isn't. I've literally heard the words of, hey, everybody just go be entrepreneurs, go do your own thing. And so you had each of his leaders running their own business units, doing their own thing, creating a division, creating lone wolves and creating that uncertainty. Nobody knew what was going on. Transparency disappeared. So it's so interesting that one person can make such a huge difference in the way that our teams behave. And to your point, it permeates throughout the organization. So while I personally haven't been directly involved in, you know, culture transformation projects in the specific way that Damien describes, I have been part of the team responding to those engagement survey results to improve employee satisfaction and motivation, and in turn, you know, stood up company-wide mentor programs to create that environment for growth. But the theory of intrinsic motivation, we want to feel that we have purpose, that we're growing, that we're developing. And that starts with the permission from your leadership organization to do those things and to place value in the things that are going to empower your employees to grow. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is so interesting to see that leaders can be a tailwind for those sort of culture initiatives and the sort of values that you put on paper, or they can basically render them completely useless by <laughs> just not operating in that way. And yeah, I've seen both. And yeah, it's just incredible what sort of impact they are able to achieve. So I think the leadership engagement on that front, as always, is absolutely key. And I've seen an entire organization, a large corporate organization that I worked for, completely turn upside down within a week after a leader has joined and operated in a completely different way. You know, like suddenly all of those values that you thought were working for were completely thrown out the window and morale just completely nosedived. Yeah. They're still painted on the office wall, for yeah. sure. And they, they stare at you as you walk past, but it's just... <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the question is, do you trust the slogans that you read on the walls or do you trust <laughs> what you see in the halls? Exactly. That's the motto when it comes to culture. And I think you don't even need any slogans if it is really part of the way people operate and the way leaders show everybody how it's done. I think you don't need those sort of slogans and... Some people think that is culture by having those motivational slogans yeah, yeah. on the wall. I think they got it completely wrong. So lots of great tips here from Damien. So Damien, if you're listening to this, thanks again for joining the show. And for everybody keen to explore the topic further, please check out the episode on the State of Sales and Aidment podcast. <laughs> I've got the merch on today, by the way. I'm trying to diversify now that there's so much uncertainty in sales enablement. You know, I'm, I'm going to merchandise as well. You never know. Now, next up, we have the social bus, and there was one item that you wanted to talk about, Devin. What is that all about? It's survey time. So SEC is back with another survey for the enablement community, and this time it's working to drive salary transparency in the enablement space, which is one of my favorite topics. And thankfully, salary transparency is all the rage these days, everywhere you look, because it's super helpful to know what the competitive salaries and packages look like for enablers across industries, roles, and, and levels. So the survey prompt says that once it's released, the final report is going to support a 360 view of sales enablement compensation. They're going to slice and dice all that salary data by the things that matter most, gender, experience, company growth, stage, and revenue, sales enablement, team size, and hours per week. And as I've said on the show before, I am always so excited and enthused to review insights from these surveys from, you know, the various folks that run them because they provide essential metrics and data points that enablers can actively leverage and use, especially on, on this topic, if you're, they're negotiating a pay increase for their current role or perhaps engaging in a salary conversation with a new employer. So the survey is still open for responses. I highly recommend everybody head over there and Fill in the details and you know, Felix, that you and I will be covering that survey once it comes out. So definitely take a moment to fill out that survey so we can drive salary transparency and enablement. 
Yeah, I haven't filled out the survey yet, but yeah, I think definitely important to understand those sort of uh, ranges and those sort of dynamics. I guess the pattern that I've come across is really that the more strategic the sales enablement role is set up and the closer it is to sales leadership or senior leadership in general, the better compensated it is. Yeah. And that is also kind of reflected in my work as a sales enablement consultant. So whenever I engage businesses and the nature of the project is kind of more operational, you know, so it's just going through the motion and getting certain things done. Those projects are, of course, not as highly valued as those sort of big strategic projects. So I think across the board, the higher the expectation is in the impact that sales enablement is able to achieve and the more that translates into the expectations of the respective role, the better it will be compensated. So I think also when you think about job security and future-proofing yourself and really flexing your sales enablement muscles and really being able to create that impact that you want to achieve with your work, if you're looking for jobs, it's always worthwhile to look out for those that are more strategic in nature that will also be automatically better compensated, hopefully, one would hope. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting, too, a previous company that I was at brought in a consultant to ensure, you know, our salaries were equitable and that we were doing things the right way. And, and when I had my meeting with them about our enablement team in their massive database of jobs and salary bands, nothing about enablement. So we had to cobble together from different roles. And so you have to think like companies are using this data to make their decisions and enablement is often not placed correctly in the right salary band. So the more insights and data we have, even if it's from these types of surveys, the better. But that mm. was very eye-opening for me. I'm like, nothing? What do we have? Training? What? There was nothing even in there. Mm. Again, this expansive database. So the more data we have, the better to make the right decisions. I think the best connection that I can make in terms of the kind of roles that I know and the compensation that I know, which sort of aligns with those different kinds of scopes across a sales enablement role would be the comparison that you would have between a sales trainer on the one end of the scale and a change management leader on the other end of the scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, guess who's compensated better, right? It's the right. it's a change management leader that is really able to get that stakeholder alignment, prepare for change, implement change, and cement change, and are really able to effectively drive that transformation journey of an organization. So I think those sort of skill sets are more and more reflected in the sort of roles that are better compensated out there. So yeah, we'll see. I'm excited about that survey, keen to see what the results are. And I hope that SEC will build that connection between the nature of the role and the compensation. Yes. I think uh, job titles are a bit wishy-washy. I agree. They can be called different things, but doing completely different kind of tasks. So I think the nature of the role is really crucial to understand in that context. Yeah. Now, speaking of jobs, I feel like we're talking about <laughs> jobs a lot, but it makes sense. So Stephanie Zarabian, for everybody who's not familiar, is the job board queen on LinkedIn in the sales enablement <laughs> space. So she does God's work and compiles all the enablement jobs that are out there and really act as an agent connecting the great jobs with the great talent. She's not compensated for that. So this is all something she does in her spare time. I always picture her sitting in the dark at midnight, pulling all those things together. Yeah. For anybody who's interested in checking that job board out, I will drop that link in the chat. That's the latest post of hers. And another interesting one that I also wanted to share in that context, and we're talking about layoffs a lot these days, something that is really interesting is a website called layoffs.fyi that have been created that really tracks the layoffs across the tech industry and really breaks down how many layoffs have been happening for certain companies per month and so on. So this is something if you feel like diving into the data or you simply want to feel a bit depressed for a moment this is something to <laughs> certainly check out lots of charts here and data to dive into so one interesting insight um, that you can see here is that in january alone there were more layoffs than leading up to november so yeah it's kind of ramped up and then it kind of escalated especially in November and January, which is obviously a tough pill to swallow. And it also breaks down what sort of industries have been most effective 
how many layoffs have been happening per company and so on. I'm sure there's some sort of strategic insight that you can gather from a job hunt point of view to actually see what sort of industries might pose more risks if you focus on those because they had more layoffs or what might still be to come in those areas. But yeah, I don't want to make this do this analysis here. I'm not an expert in the job market side of things. For that one, I refer you to Stephanie Zarabian. I hope she will be able to join next month again. But in the meantime, again, if you are looking for a job right now, please make sure to check out her job board. And also, if you're a hiring manager, please get in touch with her to post your job there as well. So she's created a great community around her job board, and I can highly recommend supporting her just for the sake of her continuing with this awesome project. So thanks again, Stephanie. It's so incredible. Every enabler I know that's looking for a role, like first and foremost, are you following Stephanie? Okay, now here are the posts. All right, like it's such a phenomenal resource. Absolutely. For those of you not familiar, I run a learning experience together with Mike Kunkel. So it's called the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement Learning Experience, where we have translated his best-selling book, The Building Blocks of Sales Enablement, into a learning experience that combines video content, group coaching calls, and a bunch of resources that makes it easy to really master that proven framework. And we also offer a 50% job seeker discount. So anybody who's looking for a job right now should consider that and check that out. We had two people already that have not too long after they joined and really engaged with the subject matter, been using some of those frameworks to really pitch themselves in new roles and have been able to succeed in actually landing a new job. So All right. it actually works. So I love it. I can confidently say <laughs> this will not only help you develop yourself in the long run, but will also help you to position yourself better if you're a job seeker. Now, moving on to the some of the articles. So, Devin, you're the article queen. I don't know what you're <laughs> doing, but you always come across those gold nuggets. And the first one is one of the many topics related to AI that we'll cover today. And talk us through it. What happened there? Yeah, AI all day. So we're going to talk about how AI can improve employee performance. This is an article from FastCo that focuses on the variety of ways companies and leaders can use AI to improve employee performance and engagement. So this one features insights from the founder of Fusion Fund, Lu Zhang, and the article digs into the recent accessibility of AI, especially for those of us, myself included, as you know, Felix, we learned this last episode, who are not coding or AI experts. And it really focuses on how we can use AI to drive efficiencies and in turn more effectiveness across a number of different roles and industries. Basically, you don't have to be a data scientist or coding genius to bring AI into your business workflows, into your programs to drive that organizational and employee execution improvement that I think we all need to see. So Felix, you and I discussed ChatGPT quite a bit. We did some early coverage of it. We're going to talk more about it today. But AI is more accessible than ever. We also know that enablement is all about increasing efficiency, effectiveness, and making it easier for the teams we support to do their jobs. And AI is designed to do the same and facilitate all of that goodness at warp speed. So quick quote from the article that says, McKinsey suggests that at least 30% of tasks in 60% of jobs could currently be automated. Felix, you actually shared your thoughts on this exact topic in an episode of Enable Minutes that I saw on LinkedIn, that AI won't replace our jobs, but the people who are using AI will. Because it's not about replacing humans, it's about creating efficiencies and speed and adjusting where our employees focus and how they focus so that they are really leaning into the most meaningful business impacting tasks, allowing people to work smarter and not harder. So the TLDR from the article, how do we do all of this if it's so easy and accessible? How do we create these efficiencies in our programs now? The first order of business is to add tools with AI capabilities to your tech stack. Then, when all that's in place, figure out additional ways to automate your workflow. So the article suggests starting with AI for improved communications, which you and I have talked quite a bit about. So examples here are using AI to send better emails that won't be flagged by spam filters, writing effective copy for basic communication, and to ensure that you're communicating in the best way possible, the most effective way possible using the best words. The other thing, which is really where this article leans in, is reducing the number and complexity of manual tasks 
by leveraging AI in a number of places. One of those that we've seen quite a bit is AI-enabled chatbots to answer those basic questions, allowing support reps or other folks in your business to focus their efforts and time on the more challenging questions that are coming through and the situations that require a little bit more of a nuanced response, which should in turn enhance the customer experience. So thinking about where I spend most of my admin time, it's scheduling, preparing for meetings, sending follow-ups, you know, with all the action items and tools like Otter AI and others can actually automate a lot of those admin moments, which is pretty incredible. So the possibilities with AI are endless. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was using AI for better employee competency, skill set, and engagement tracking. So in addition to that, there are some tools that can also eliminate unconscious biases in the hiring process. But essentially, AI is going to continue to change the game and allow folks in any industry to level up at a pace that I don't think we could have imagined even as little as a year ago. A friend of mine was actually just updating their resume for the first time in a while and was stuck. He was like, I have no idea where to begin. I haven't done this in six years. And I was like, let's go to ChatGPT. Let's like unblock with some of this AI. And so it provided a semi-paved path forward, giving him the right starting point to kick off the job search. So overall, this was a super interesting article. I think it'll help folks keep their finger on the pulse of what's happening in the world of what we'll call you know, accessible AI. And again, as we've discussed, I, I'm pretty confident AI is going to be a must-have tool for professionals in the tech space. I have so much more to learn when it comes to AI and the possibilities, but it's so exciting. So Felix, we have a few more articles on the subject, but what are some ways that you've seen the companies integrating this, let's again call it the newly accessible AI technology into their workflows to drive efficiencies? I think at this stage, there's hardly any structured efforts that I really see companies follow. So there's no initiative that really aims at revisiting all the workflows that are happening within the company and to see where AI can add efficiency. I think at this stage, it's an individual effort. And you spoke about this exercise that you've gone through with your team before, where you were looking or brainstorming ways in which tools like ChatGPT can be leveraged. So this is kind of the common approach that I see more often being followed. But I I do think just like Google was a game changer back in the day, suddenly there was no benefit in just remembering an incredible amount of information anymore, you know, like for any facts that you wanted to know, it wasn't worthwhile remembering anymore unless you really need them in a the moment. Google is always there. And now with voice assistants, it's even easier, you know, and whenever I want to know something in my house, I've got about five Google Homes spread around the house. I can just say, <laughs> hey, I'm not going to say any words right now because it will trigger my Google Home here in my room. But I can always ask for the fact that I want to know. And I think it's the same with AI these days. It's kind of a co-pilot that just makes you so much more effective. And I think at this stage, it's up to everybody to sort of figure out how to use it best. And on that note, I also want to announce that I will create a mini course on ChatGPT in Sales Enablement, where I'll break down all the prompts that you can use and all the ways you can actually leverage ChatGPT in your Sales Enablement work. So for anybody interested in that, really keen to hear your thoughts, specifically what you want to learn about that, or if it's completely a black box for you right now, you don't have any idea how it works and you just want to understand the basics. I've been spending a lot of time with it. I pretty much use ChatGPT every day of the week now. Just subscribed to ChatGPT Pro yesterday, which is the paid version. It essentially just makes it reliably accessible and also much, much faster. So I can definitely recommend for anybody who has dipped their toes into it already and is already using it on a regular basis in their workflows to consider subscribing. But yeah, that one is coming up. So I think it's a really exciting time. And the crazy thing to always remember is that this is just the beginning. We're all sitting here being wowed. I think if you look five years ahead, your head would explode pretty much because it will be so amazing what sort of things it can do. And obviously, it also poses a danger to a certain degree, you know, like of certain tasks not being valued as much as before. But this is, again, a, the analogy that I always or the connection that I draw between Google back in the day and the remembering of facts becoming redundant and certain tasks these days becoming redundant. You know, I think the first area to be affected will be those bottom line tasks that are really basic and don't require a lot of sophistication. And if you can get those out of the way first, 
as a professional and you can use AI to really leverage those, I guess that frees us up for more strategic thinking, more creative thinking. And this is at the end of the day, really the sort of work that we want to do and that we are valued, that we value most as humans. So I think it's all positive from my point of view, but it is worthwhile just to keeping up to date with the sort of possibilities that are out there around AI. I will be joining your chat GPT session. I need all the help I can get. Awesome. Cool. So the next item that we have on the agenda is Chef GPT jobs to be replaced. So this was another article that I had researched. So this was from businessinsider.com. And in this article, Amazon employees had done a whole lot of experimentation with Chat GPT. So this is one of those cases where it's a tech-savvy organization, of course, but nonetheless, really interesting that they put ChatGPT to work and really explored those use cases within the organization. And they really said that they had found that it was capable of answering customer support questions, creating training documents, and providing answers around corporate strategy. And providing answers around corporate strategy, I think that this is also a really interesting one a use case that I hadn't considered before so that you can actually train it on understanding your corporate strategy and then any employees can then ask how that translates into their area and what sort of KPIs to consider and so on. So I think really interesting use case there. They've also used ChatGPT to generate general written content. The media industry has also started to experiment with AI-generated content. So you see more and more of that as well. I do think having seen AI-generated articles that have been published by media companies before, and they have actually called out that they were AI-generated, I think you can still tell if it's not edited at all. Yeah. Sometimes AI and ChatGPT in general has the tendency to explain the alphabet a bit, if you know what I mean. So they basically <laughs> just spell out really basic things as part of an explanation. So I think you can still tell. But again, as we said before, I think AI just gives you a starting point for the editing in that sort of use case. And what they also found, though, was that users have really found that ChatGPT can generate misinformation. So you can ask questions. It answers them as if it was fully confident in the answer. But it is actually not the correct answer. <laughs> so it, is, uh, it seems like the Kruger-Dunning effect for anybody who's familiar, might be baked in. So that's uh, <laughs> the overestimation of your own capabilities. And I think that comes through <laughs> in some cases. Then also on top of that, what they found was that it at times also incorrectly answered coding problems and produced errors in basic maths, right? So you can still see a lot of shortfalls in that regard. And I think it's still really important to remember that you can't just lean back and let the AI do your work. You still have to be the driver. It's a co-pilot, right? It's not your pilot. Yep. And you really need to understand it as such. And I think this article is really interesting in that regard that it called out some of those weaknesses. But just to get back to the headline of this article, so the chat GPT jobs to be replaced by AI that they called out were, so first of all, coders, computer programmers, software engineers, and data analysts, advertising, content creation, technical writing, and journalism paralegals and legal assistants, market research analysts, teachers, financial analysts and personal financial advisors, traders, graphic designers, accountants, and customer service agents. <laughs> it's quite a list a of jobs to be <laughs> replaced. But I think the interesting thing to note here is because enablement is such a varied function and requires such a broad skill set, I actually recognize a lot of the things that enablement does in that sort of list. So data analysis is one that comes to mind. Content creation, of course. Market research can also be part of it if you do work around buyer acumen or competitive research around messaging and teaching, of course. So all of these things can be replaced by AI. So I think if you consider those sort of dynamics that take place, I think the first step for us today is to really understand that it is not something immediate, like those jobs won't be gone tomorrow, but it will gravitate towards those jobs being replaced at some stage, right? So in the interim, it's important to understand how AI can be leveraged to really support those different areas. As I said, like data analysis, content creation, market research, and teaching. How can you use AI to boost those your productivity in those spaces? 
And then at the same time, how can you upskill to be more strategic in your thinking so that your capabilities are not limited to the operational aspects of those different areas, but instead the orchestration of those areas and the strategic focus of those different areas. So this is really something that I took away from this article. And Devin, I'm, I'm curious to know, have you already incorporated AI into your workflows? And are there any examples you can share with us without uh, revealing any hot trade <laughs> secrets from your organization? Well, as of right now, we're using it in a pretty basic way, again, to generate some interesting talk tracks, email templates and responses for our sales organization. But I've been doing some exploring into ChatGPT and OpenAI to look at how we can create efficiencies in our tech stack. So looking into Zapier and Zendesk with OpenAI, Salesforce and OpenAI. And then again, like just testing some different messaging variations around new messaging and positioning or pricing. I'm also digging into how we can use it for our quality control team to see if, how we can catch mistakes or, or issues early on in the process. But there's so much that we're looking into and very basic usage right now. So lots in the future for us. But you made me think of this article I read a couple of weeks ago with a mental health company that ran an AI experiment. And so they used ChatGPT or something similar to respond to some of their I think it was like a kind of like a better help type of company, so emotional support. And so they used the chat bot to write answers for humans, so support folks, to review and modify. And the data was pretty interesting. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think the responses from the human plus machine responses were much more well-received and they got a better score on those. So really interesting things. Again, people that are using it that we might not even know about or support teams testing it out. So yeah, the possibilities are endless. Amazing. We also have a few comments here in that regard. Cheryl is saying that it will never replace smart humans, but will augment and propel their productivity. Absolutely agree. Julie Gates is saying, yes, please. I've been playing around and would love a little bit more structured approach to it. So thanks, Julie, for that feedback. That's great to hear. Paul Butterfield is saying the best thing I've seen from JetGPT is a limerick about Kanye. <laughs> Paul, you clearly have not seen the Christmas poem that uh, we have created <laughs> with JetGPT. One of my favorites. It was an enablement Christmas poem. Cheryl was also saying, how many kids will write essays using JetGPT? So I have heard that there's already a platform out there that can actually identify whether school assignments have been written with AI tools. So yep. it seems like the counteroffensive from the education industry has already started on that front. I think it's a low-hanging fruit, obviously, for students. So there might be a small time window where it actually is effective, but yeah. Yes. And I think it was a college student who created it. It's like the kid who raises their hand to tell the teacher they forgot to uh, assign homework. So <laughs> a little bit of a bummer, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's clearly not the most popular kid at uni anymore, so... Too bad. So what do we have next? Let's talk about the books. We had one other article, but let's save this one for next month. So the first book review was the book from Julie Borson. The book is called When Women Lead. Tell us all about it, please. Oh my God, you know I will. So first of all, I am obsessed with this book. I couldn't decide where to stop with my summary and book review, but I am going to keep it as succinct as possible. So author Julie Borston, former Fortune magazine writer and honor presenter for CNBC, shares the definitive guide to the power of having women in leadership positions and why equality for women in tech and business in general has been so difficult to achieve. When Women Lead is jam-packed with science and data-backed stories of female founders and leaders, challenges they faced, how they overcame them, and how women in leadership positions bring unique skills and abilities to the table to thoughtfully and methodically solve problems, develop teams, grow their businesses, and how they can also break through preconceived notions and unconscious biases to drive change not only from the top, but from the middle of the organization that they're in. So the insights Julie shares are delivered through a series of stories about a number of female entrepreneurs, including Reese Witherspoon, which I thought was very interesting. And it very thoughtfully integrates research studies and it gives the reader a data-backed roadmap for breaking through bias and stereotypes to achieve success. So one of my favorite quotes from the book is that women are less accepting of the status quo 
because they are not a part of the status quo, which is why we're often flagged or women in the workplace are often flagged as the squeaky wheel when we speak up, propose a new way of doing things or challenge a standard way of doing things that might be causing a negative downstream impact. So I found myself stopping several times to take notes throughout this book. I mean, I filled up half a notebook as I was reading it. But there was one specific example that Julie shared that stopped me in my tracks, put the book down, had a moment, because these were real things that I've experienced. And at the time that I was experiencing these things, I was like, hold on, is it just me? Am I doing something wrong? Are my ideas or recommendations not up to par? Is that why maybe they're being ignored or invalidated by the folks I'm engaging with? And throughout the book, Julie addresses why these things happen more often than we think in business. So I'm going to give you a 30-second overview of one specific story from the book that just, it got me. It was so good. So Julie shares a story about Carol Bartz, the former CEO of Yahoo and Autodesk. And she says that when looking at systemic issues, male colleagues often miss the opportunity to identify systemic issues. And this is based on available research that was cited in the book, but men tend to consider the highest priority problem and choose the highest priority solution and then apply that solution without looking at all of the interrelated factors of the problem or said solution. Making me think of that move fast and break things tech value that I wish never existed. So in this scenario, a male colleague shared that he preferred to fight fires as they came up in the business, while Carol really tried to work to prevent fires before they happened. In this case, the male colleague didn't like this, resisted the more thoughtful, methodical approach to problem solving because he felt like Carol was slowing things down, not being a team player, moving on to someone else's turf, and getting in the way of the play. So Carol's approach to getting in front of the issues, which in turn would have saved them time and driven deeper cross-functional collaboration, was seen as very disruptive, and she was actually criticized for her proposed solution. So in my mind, you know, my, my brain is wired to a very specific mindset, which is aligned to that thoughtful, methodical change in problem solving that does yield speedier execution when it's done right. And the friction that comes when I've dealt with leaders who have jumped to conclusion, reacted, rushed to fix something very quickly without actually stopping to think about the big picture or not wanting to do all of the necessary work to get it right the first time. And it's not limited to the executive leadership team. I think as many of us have seen this type of behavior it happens in pockets across organizations. So a couple of super quick highlights from the book. First, companies with higher female representation exhibit higher corporate performance. And this is because women tend to manage in a less hierarchical, more collaborative, and more interactive way. In general, women are underrepresented in leadership positions, but studies show that women in the C-suite and director-level positions are more likely to drive strategic, sustained change in the businesses that they're a part of. And Julie also spends a lot of time on growth versus fixed mindset and how men and women are taught from a very young age to think a certain way about themselves. And, and women are often encouraged into a fixed mindset while men are often encouraged to take on that growth mindset. But the good news here is that as women get older, many of them shift into that growth mindset and consistently try to develop themselves. So instead of trying to prove themselves given the confines that they exist in, they're focusing on improving themselves and their skills. And finally, the power of DEI in leadership in an organization. It has to be deliberate, it has to be data driven. And the stats show that diverse teams produce better outcomes, and companies that commit themselves to diverse leadership are more successful. So overall, I would very highly recommend this book to all aspiring leaders, regardless of gender, as well as anybody sitting in a leadership role or C-suite in the startup space. So four stars for this one. I, I want to give it five, but five stars don't feel real. So I'm giving it four, but it's so worth it. I highly recommend it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Devin. That sounds like a very interesting book to delve into. For anybody who's not sold on the diversity business case yet, which, by the way, very much exists. So anybody who's interested in learning more about that one, um, there's a research piece by McKinsey, which actually puts a revenue number and revenue uplift on the amount of females involved in leadership positions versus the performance of the overall business. So I think it's a no brainer from my personal point of view. But I do agree, you know, like the sort of dynamics still take place. And funny enough, I think 
it is more prevalent from my point of view in the tech space than it is in some other industries. So yeah. I've mainly operated in tech and media. And I think I have to say in media, it's much more diverse from a gender equality point of view. I don't know if it's a subject matter. If it is, it's probably also an explanation for why it isn't the case in tech, considering that, you know, if you have technical founders building companies, they're most likely to be men still. Yeah. Just simply, again, because of that point around what people are being taught to think about themselves and men are more likely still to be in those technical, analytical sort of roles, which probably also leads to them starting more tech businesses. And then, I don't know, maybe the culture grows out of that as well. The first section of the book is all about female entrepreneurs in the tech space and, and other industries trying to secure funding from VCs and how, I can't think of the exact number, but the number of women that get funding is much lower than males who make their proposal. And it's really, you know, the people in the room that are making these decisions are going to respond to the folks that look like them, act like them, think like them, have similar interests that they can relate to. And so, so many female-founded businesses don't get the funding that the male-founded businesses do for a variety of reasons, which, again, Julie unpacks in great detail. But it was eye-opening for me where so many of the female-founded businesses have gone and had to really prove the business impact and value before VCs would engage, where, again, the males that are mentioned in the book don't really have to prove much. It's more of a vision, and they'll get the dollars versus the female entrepreneur. So really, really interesting data and insights on that front as well. I think it's interesting, the thought of, what actually creates those sort of structures and that sort of thinking. If you think about the education somebody goes through and the upbringing, even all those years, all those formative years that really inform how you think about yourself and how you interact with the world, they basically at the moment still do all the damage, so to speak. So <laughs> yes. females often taught not to speak up or not to be bossy or whatever. Yep. And then they're told that for 18 years plus, and then suddenly they're expected to change or everybody's expected to then change that sort of thinking in a professional environment. So from my point of view, I think, yes, in business, we can aim to make as much of a difference as we can. But I think for things to really sustainably change at scale, the changes need to happen much, much earlier. And I think that includes the way people parent, the way the school system works, the way the school system approaches different skills and possibly also gender biases and so on. I think yep. it has to be a holistic solution. We should still aim to contribute as much as possible in business, of course. But yeah, very interesting book. I'll definitely check it out. So thank you for sharing, Devin. Of course. We're running out of time, unfortunately. So the book that I wanted to talk about, which is Stories for Work, and for everybody who knows me, storytelling is something that I have been keen upskilling in for quite a while because I have to admit it, I don't see myself as a great storyteller. So definitely something. And I can tell you this book, absolutely amazing stories for work for anybody who wants to read along and be part of the Felix Kruger book club. Yes. Please check it out. We'll cover it in all detail next month in the March edition of this month in sales enablement. Thank you for tuning in. If you found this session useful, please make sure to share it with your favorite enabler. And we're always keen for feedback as well. So if there's any topics that you want to hear about or any great articles or books you come across that you want us to cover, please let us know and we will look into it. So everybody, thank you so much for joining and I will see you next month on This Month in Sales Enablement.